Chapter 6 of the Octave of Claudius. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by L.J.V. The Octave of Claudius by Barry Payne. Chapter 6. It was a comfortable house to live in, Claudius decided but there were some queer points about it. In the first place, there were no visitors. It suited the doctor, apparently, to live in a certain style. Dinner, for instance, was distinctly a formal function, but he evidently did not think there was any necessity for witnesses of his severe taste in appointments or of his conversation, which at times was brilliant, or of the excellence of his chef and his cellar. In a word, he did, merely to soothe himself, what most people do in order to keep up appearances. No stranger, apparently, with the exception of Claudius, ever trod those soft carpets, or tasted those exquisite wines, or heard the doctor on those few occasions when it pleased him to put his great ideas aside and be merely eccentrically witty. Mrs. Lamb must have realized that Claudius would notice this. She took particular pains to tell him that the doctor was a recluse and would see no one, and so on. There was something queer, too, about Mrs. Lamb. She was religious, ardently religious, but yet she was an untamable woman. Religion might inspire her, Claudius thought, and he was angered with himself for such analysis of his hostess, but it would never hold her. Her eyes looked searchingly at him out of her pale face, and he saw in them this much, at least, that she was not a woman to be taken lightly or easily. With regard to her feelings towards her husband, she was very much in doubt, but he was certain that she was afraid of him. And what was the doctor's own position? He was formally courteous to his wife in public, Further, he did not talk her over with Claudius. Further, he took an evident interest in her. But for all that, Claudius could not persuade himself that the interest which the doctor took in his wife was the same as the interest which a man takes in the woman whom he loves. It seemed a colder, more scientific thing. Claudius could not explain it. He could only wonder. But one point seemed stranger to him than all the curious way in which he was taken for granted. He had been in the house for days, and he had come into it as a broken-down tramp. The lambs had only his word for it that he was not a broken-down tramp. Yet the days went by, and no question was put to him about his past, and very little was said about his payment of his obligation. Nothing, in fact, except the doctor's indefinite assurance that it would be all right. As a rule, he spent the greater part of the day with Mrs. Lamb. He drove her out, read to her, educated her taste in music. She began to make some sort of confidence in him. She told him she had had a very great sorrow, and that religion had been a consolation to her in it. Once she began to talk about the doctor, with her eyes fixed nervously on the door of the room, lest he should enter suddenly. Claudius did not like this. Gabriel was very clever, she said, but it was too awful. He despised religion. 
He seemed to be entirely given up to one thing. She did not know whither it was leading, but she had an uncomfortable sensation that it was leading somewhere, that they were on the verge of things. Then she hesitated and looked shyly down at her own knees and said, with seeming irrelevance, I want you, Mr. Sandell, to be very careful. In what way? In my dealings with the doctor? Why, surely, he broke off and laughed, you must not have these presentiments. There is nothing to be afraid of in a scientific enthusiasm. Isn't there, she said rather drearily. Claudius had no desire whatsoever to make confidences. If anything, he was inclined to reserve but he felt that his host and hostess had a claim to know something about him, and it was characteristic of him that he had to satisfy all claims of which he was conscious, whether they were pressed or not. He chose this opportunity one night after dinner. The dining room was large and irregular in shape. The table, an oval oak table, was laid in a square recess and brightly lit with wax candles. The rest of the room was almost in shadow. It had been rather an interesting dinner. The doctor, starting from a case in the papers that morning, had gone on to a theory that suicide was largely the result of a sense of humor. People killed themselves because they saw that any further existence would be ridiculous. It was a pity, but those who had a sense of humor generally had it over-accentuated. Had Claudius ever noticed that? Had it never occurred to him how much better things must be on the moon? Yes, of course, there were usual shilling manual baby arguments to show that the atmosphere and temperature of the moon did not permit the existence of human beings. It was the common confusion of beings with bodies. There were certainly beings on the moon, and the bodies did not matter. Things will be much better there, because nothing there would be over-accentuated. The consuming passion of love that we men and women feel would be on the moon a mild preference. Our Athanasian creed would be there a hesitating assent to Matthew Arnold's definition. Dinner would be afternoon tea, and afternoon tea would be no more than one transient, dreamy glance at the thinnest possible bread and butter. Everything would be toned down. My own enthusiasm, he concluded, will be nothing more than the feeling which makes a boy buy the sixpenny chemical cabinet, do four tricks, break one test tube, and swoop the remainder for a specimen of common quartz with which to initiate a new geological passion. Claudius took up the idea and went on with it mirthfully. He and the doctor combined their suggestions, the wildest suggestions of what this under-accentuated, toned-down moon-like would be. Mrs. Lamb, consciously well-dressed, watched them in silence, sometimes with anxious eyes, as she wondered if all this was quite religious, sometimes with quite a different expression, as she thought what a good thing it was to look at Claudius and hear his musical voice, and then grew afraid of the thought. The doctor said that the moon-life would be heavenly. Why not have it? Why not reconstruct your existence here? Why not reduce your enthusiasm to the schoolboy's whim? The doctor became suddenly serious. That is my own fault for speaking inaccurately, he said. I spoke of my own enthusiasm, 
and I was wrong. The enthusiasm is not mine, but I am its. I belong to it. I am its slave. Body and soul, I am claimed by the service of humanity and given up to it. But a willing slave? The doctor did not answer for a moment. He went on peeling a peach, his white nervous fingers and the knife in them, suggesting the rapid neatness of a surgical operation. He seemed to be thinking deeply. I really do not know, he said at last. I never wanted it to come, and I never resisted it. It is, I should say, that some powerful tendency has absorbed my will into it. I feel like part of a natural law. Yes, that's absurd, but I really grope for words to describe my sensations, and I do not get them very well. And your work is for the good of humanity? Ultimately, I wish I had some part in it. My end in view in my own work was so much more selfish. Perhaps that was why I failed. I have never told you about it. Dr. Lamb shot a rapid glance at his wife, and it was she who answered, Yes, you must not speak about it, Mr. Sandell, if the subject hurts you. On the contrary, he protested, I am anxious to tell you. The one thing I can do, apparently, is to prevent you from being generous in the dark. No, no, said Mrs. Lamb, leaning back in her chair. You must not imply that we could possibly mistrust you. That is hard on us, she spoke earnestly. The doctor looked at her significantly. She was saying just what he wished, but he was very well aware that she was not saying it because he wished it, nor from mere politeness, but because she really meant it. It confirmed a vague notion that had crossed his mind that day. It enabled him, as he thought over his future plans, to see where there was a possible weak spot. The whole thought went through his mind in a flash. Quite so, he murmured, as he passed the tips of his fingers gently through the rose water in the bowl beside him. Quite so. I should really like to tell you, said Claudius, I think it would interest you. Mrs. Lamb leaned her elbows on the table and her head on her hands and looked at him intently. Ah, that is undoubted. It would be very good of you, said the doctor. At this moment, a servant came forward with the coffee, and Dr. Lamb gave a rapid order. The coffee and, and everything we are likely to want on the lawn at once. You would rather, the doctor went on inquiringly, turned to the others. The night is so hot and I thought it would be pleasanter to talk out there. They both thought it a capital idea. Mrs. Lamb's maid had entered the room with an oriental shawl in her hand. Mrs. Lamb adjusted it carefully over her head and shoulders. She was a curiously grotesque figure in that shawl. Her dinner dress had all that Madame Elise could do for mortal woman. The pallor of her face and the darkness of her hair were noticeable. She missed being beautiful. She looked like an Egyptian dissenter that had known Bond Street. The world had chosen her dress. The flesh and the spirit showed alternately in the expression of her face. Outside was growing dusk. A big rug had been spread over the grass. On it were lounge chairs and a low table. On the table were the smoking apparatus and the wonderful Madeira that the doctor liked to taste after dinner. The tiny Roman lamp gave a minute weird flame. The servant handed the coffee and withdrew. The two men lighted their cigars from the lamp. Now, said the doctor, 
if you are ready, Mr. Sandell. Claudius began. I think, he said slowly, that the thing I have wanted most of all through life has been freedom, the absence of limitation. I have often thought that I would be willing merely to taste it and then die, yet I have never tasted it. As for my birth, I am the only son of my father, and my recollection of my mother, who died when I was a child, is very vague. My father, Sir Constantine Sandell, his knighthood was one of the birthday honors in the year that I was born, and it is an honor that he has since regretted, would have been considered in some respects an indulgent man. At Eton, I know now, I had very much more pocket money than was good for me. At the age of 16, I got the parental sanction to the use of tobacco. Well, my father is himself a smoker. At Cambridge, again, my allowance was very generous. But in important points, I was never free. Now, religion is, I suppose, an important point. Mrs. Lamb looked up at the gray sky and then slowly down again. Claudius continued, Religion was, is, and always will be a most important point to my father. Unfortunately, it is a point on which he has never been able to satisfy himself. He has changed his religion times without number. He is about due into Buddhism by now, he said with a bitter laugh, so I do not see what else is left. No, I am not joking and I was always compelled to follow any sect with which he happened to be in sympathy. I myself have been a Scot Presbyterian, an English low churchman, and an English ritualist. I have found that the truth was in the Greek church alone. I have been a Roman Catholic. I have followed my father into the religion of three persons and no God, which has its dwelling somewhere off Feather Lane. I have tried with him to find consolation in metaphysics that neither of us could quite understand. Then I listened to the sermons of Parker, and after that to Voicy. I did not mind. I was only a boy. Fellows always believed what their fathers believed, and it was all in the day's work. It was at the call to spiritualism that I rebelled. By this time, I was at Cambridge and had begun to think. Now my father hadn't invited to our place a professed medium from London, a Miss Matilda Combe. At this moment, the doctor and Mrs. Lamb exchanged glances, as though the name of Miss Matilda Combe were significant. It was almost dark. Claudius noticed nothing and continued. For all I know to the contrary, Miss Matilda Combe may be there still. With all that I have against her, I must own that she is a distinctly clever woman. I began to study conjuring tricks. I paid, with my father's money, for lessons from professors. When I thought that the time was ripe, I exposed Miss Matilda Combe and showed to my father that the absolute proof, as he called it, was ingenious, but that they did better at the Egyptian Hall. I might as well have spoken to the pyramids. Miss Matilda Combe was clever and plausible. She had warned my father against the very explanations that I offered. She considered that her position was confirmed and told me in so many words that I was a blasphemer. 
all that was the cause of your quarrel with your father said dr lamb dreamily no he still had hopes of me we did quarrel of course but the real reason is much more difficult to tell one day at cambridge i had a letter from him that surprised me and distressed me a good deal i knew that this woman matilda combe had a great influence over my father but i did not guess how great until i read that letter briefly it peremptorily ordered me to marry matilda combe a woman ten years older than myself a woman whom i had always had the greatest difficulty to treat with even the barest civility a woman whom i knew to be a fraudulent charlatan during the whole of a year i had been doing my best to get this woman turned out of our house and now i was calmly told that i was to marry her the spirits had willed it the spirits were very anxious for it the spirits had foretold that it would be a singularly blessed union it sounds like madness yet in all business matters my father at this very time was showing himself particularly sane particularly judicious that said the doctor is not uncommon matilda combe also must have had some talent for speculative business my father is i suppose a very wealthy man with all her influence she doubted at first if she could persuade him to leave his entire property away from me on money matters he was too sane but it had probably occurred to her that she might marry me and come into the money that way the spirits had suggested the marriage but there was never any doubt that the spirits were merely matilda combe one moment said mrs lamb rather shyly matilda i mean miss combe was a charlatan of course i think myself that spiritualism is wicked but has it not occurred to you that possibly she was really it is so hard to be certain really in love with you impossible mrs lamb i had always made it fairly clear that i despised her sometimes you know that does not make any difference well i do not think that her subsequent behavior showed that she was very fond of me at first i treated the thing as a joke but i soon saw that my father was in earnest then i refused point-blank now my father does not take point-blank refusals nicely as a rule and i expected a storm on the contrary i got a very patient letter the spirits had been at it again they had told him that i was secretly engaged to another woman and that it was for this reason i had refused but that it would be to the advantage and happiness of the other woman if i gave her up i replied that there was no other woman in the case at all as a matter of fact although it is not a particularly interesting fact i have never been in love in my life and i repeated my refusal his next letter accused me of having trifled with matilda combe's affection oh it was the wildest business matilda combe never appeared directly in it at all but it was obvious that her hand guided my father's in every letter that he wrote i need not give you details of all the correspondence at last he called me a liar and i sent him a letter which i now regret for after all i am his son that finished it i had a brief communication from him to the effect that he did not wish to see me or hear from me again he enclosed me a check 
for one quarter's allowance in advance, and told me that I was to expect nothing further from him, either during his lifetime or after his death. I sent the cheque back. Well, there I was with a bank balance of fifty pounds and the world before me. It was very cruel of him, said Mrs. Lamb. It was very cruel and unjust, she shivered slightly. Ah, the doctor said, it has turned a little chilly, hasn't it? Let us finish the story indoors, in my study, Sandell. I have got some of that tobacco about which you were speaking, if you care to try it. Thanks very much, said Sandell. I should be delighted to try the tobacco, but I must get my pipe first from upstairs. As soon as he had gone upstairs, Dr. Lamb turned briskly to his wife. Matilda Combe, he said, your sister? I, I fear so. Why is she going by her maiden name? Oh, I see. Yes, her husband. I thought she would go back to it after her husband went away. But I know no more for certain than you do. She had stopped writing letters to us, you know, Gabriel, even before my marriage. It is possible that her husband may have died. In died there. Ah, uh, yes, my wife's sister originally ran away with a fraudulent company promoter. He married her and got into difficulties. He is now, if alive, doing a term of penal servitude. So your sister resumes her maiden name, becomes a common swindler, and attempts bigamy. What trifles these things are! They ought not to concern me. And yet, Hilda, I should prefer that you did not mention these facts to Mr. Sandell. But they give him the means of reconciliation with his father. He will never take the first step in that direction. Besides, why sacrifice any man's good opinion of you? How will you be regarded if you say that you are the sister of Matilda Combe? With involuntary dislike and distrust. But I might write to Sir Charles anonymously, giving proof of my statements. Quite so admirable but you must get proof unless you know that the convict is still alive you have no case find that out first how i have not the least idea be clear of your facts before you sacrifice sisterly affection to your passion for he paused a moment and added your passion for justice and reconciliation i will do that gabriel i won't say anything to mr sandell how happy he will be to get back in his right place again. There, run along, Hilda. He will be down in the study by now. Join him and say I will be there in a moment. I have a short note to write, which must go tonight. When she had gone, he sat down before the fire, with his head in his hands, thrusting fingers into the fringe of his hair. His brow wrinkled and then cleared. He smiled horribly to himself. Hilda's letter cannot go for three or four days. I think that I can finish my business with Claudia Sandell tonight, tomorrow at the latest. After I have got him, once got him, bound by his word, after that there may be as much reconciliation as you please, my dear Hilda, because it will not make any difference. Praise God! He rose and paced the room excitedly. Praise God in the highest, he said with fervor. He sat down and scribbled a brief note and gave it to a servant. Then he crossed the hall and went down the passage to the study. I wonder, he thought to himself, 
Does Hilda think that I notice nothing? Nothing at all? She is falling in love with Sandell. I use that. He is entirely honorable. I use that. I have been kind to him, and I use that. And now we really progress. End of chapter 6